This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello, kitties. This is Alice Cooper on 102.7 FM, Triple R. You better listen, because I know where you live. Zero G. G'day. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1175, which is entitled Where Late the Catbirds Sang. Our podcast title is Potatively Draconian, uh, for reasons which will mm, possibly either not become apparent or become painfully obvious as we go through today's show. I'm flying Jan Solo today. Uh, Megan is out on leave. And thank you to the room, room with the viewers for another excellent show. And, well, a few things have happened in the genre world. Many things, actually, as usual. It sometimes seems to me as if I am living in nothing but a genre world. Everything is a genre of some sort, really. (laughs) Just like everybody is a geek. Depends upon what your geekdom is. You may be out there geeking out over Moomba or Birdman rallies or remembering the eight-hour day. All sorts of possibilities for you to enjoy your fandom moments of whatever you are a fandom of. Barbecues, grey weather. (laughs) It's all sorts of things. But... Just looking back at last week's Oscars, I'd like to note that the separately held Science and Technology Academy Awards, the SciTex, as they're known, were held on February the 19th and were hosted by Sir Patrick Stewart this year. At the ceremony, Jonathan Erland was given the Gordon E. Sawyer Award for technological contributions that have brought credit to the industry. Erland maintains dual careers in both the entertainment and industrial and exhibition design fields and is known for developing reverse blue screen, a gadget with the magnificent name of the Blue Max Flux Projector, for large screen, uh, sorry, for large scale blue screen composite photography and a method for making front projection screens. Erland's production credits included films like Star Wars, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Life Force, Spaceballs and Firefox and extended into television where he worked on The Man from UNCLE and Battlestar Galactica. Four other achievements were honoured including the shot-over K1 camera system, the Houdini visual effects and animation system, the Nuke compositing system, and the hydroscope telescoping camera crane system, as well as four more advances getting the Technical Achievement Awards, which is in the form of a certificate, not a plaque, the Block Party Procedural Rigging System at Industrial Light and Magic, 
uh, Riverman Hughes construction kit rigging system. Uh, the, that which is actually not nothing to do with uh, physical rigging. It's an animation uh, system. Primo character animation systems, uh, DreamWorks Animation, and the Presto animation system uh, developed at Pixar Animation Studios, or at least they contributed extra work to it. These technical awards are just pretty much totally neglected in favour of the other Oscars, which uh, in zero-G terms I think needed uh, a little bit of restitution. Every time I see an Oscar, the more I'm reminded of one of Tony Stark's suits. Just throw in some more hot rod red on it just to G it up a bit. But a zero-G it up a bit. Anyway, the ordinary 2018 Oscars, there were some pleasant results this year in terms of Zero G's favoured turf of science fiction, fantasy and historical genres. Uh, the Shape of Water took out Best Picture, Best Director, good on you, Guillermo del Toro. Uh, production design, original score. <laughs> Who'd have thunk that a sequel to The Creature from the Black Lagoon would swim off with a flippered claw full of Oscars? Definitely well deserved. Uh, would have gone a fit, bit further to recognise Doug Jones as Best and Most Long-Suffering Actor. And it really deserved a gong for best costume because the Gilman suit in this is so bloody beaute. Uh, let's see. Is it the first science fiction film to win best, best picky? Well, arguably, uh, there's a bit of debate on that. It could be a fantasy film because of the way it plays out. Uh, which would make it the second fantasy film since Peter Jackson's Return of the King did its pool sweep. Um, and it's probably the same kind of pool that uh, the, the Gill Man was um, <laughs> sweeping. It could be science fiction, in which case it's the first science fiction film ever to win an Oscar, a Best Picture Oscar, because, of course, um, science fiction and fantasy have uh, long gone around cleaning up on visual effects awards and costumes and makeup and so on. Um, I don't know. It's Even for me, it's a bit of a hard pick. I'm sort of leaning towards it being a fantasy film that walks in a traditional science fiction horror setting. Sorry to muddy the river even further there. But hey, what the heck? Well, are we going to look a gill man in the mouth? We've got an Oscar. Hey, let's just say it's the first science fiction film to win a Best Picture Oscar and leave it at that, eh? Let the other people sort that out. A Blade Runner 2049 picked up gongs for visual effects and cinematography, which is fair enough. Uh, Get Out got original screenplay, which is well-deserved. It's got that offbeat cabin-in-the-woods touch. Uh, this doesn't really fit into the uh, the normal genres, but it's pretty weird anyway. Free billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, the best Coen Brothers film outside of a Coen Brothers film, uh, and that had best supporting actor, our good old friend Sam Rockwell, well beyond his uh, Galaxy Quest role now, and uh, beyond playing um, uh, Justin Hammer in... Uh, <laughs> Deny the Iron Man films. Uh, Best Actress, Frances McDormand. Uh, Yeah, I think these are all quite well-deserved. In the historical area, The Darkest Hour, the Churchill film, got makeup and hairstyling. Best Actor, Gary Oldman. So that's what Commissioner Gordon did during the war. Uh, Phantom Fred got achievement in costume design. Frocks and menswear, watch your step. Uh, Dunkirk, sound editing, sound mixing and film editing. It did sound great. 
uh, I, Tonya, which is a historical film, Best Supporting Actress for Alison Janney. Go CJ Craig <laughs> from The West Wing. And Coco, Best Animated Feature with its song Remember Me being the best song animated films frequently take out the song category as well. So, yeah, quite a good um, year this year at the Oscars for zero-G genre productions, which sounds like a studio, but it isn't, beyond the one I'm sitting in now. (laughs) So, yeah, good on you guys and gals and Gilman, all very well deserved. Uh, now, sadly, um, heard of the uh, the passing of Lewis Gilbert, the British director, producer, screenwriter, and actor as well. Uh, born on the sixth of March, nineteen twenty, so he had a very long trot. To the twenty third of February this year, passed away. A highly versatile director who turned his workmanlike hand to any number of genres from British noir through historical films, World War II and Napoleonic, for example, uh, military dramas, to all manner of light-hearted and bittersweet comedies, and even the excesses of the Bond franchise in the 1970s and late 60s. His service during World War II as a film unit director and his early life travelling with his family and entertaining in music halls left Gilbert well able to humanise the humblest characters in his movies, which I think is kind of a signature of his films. Uh, His titles include uh, The Little Ballerina in 1947, Time, Gentlemen, Please, The Slasher in 53, The Good Die Young in 54, some great titles in there, The Sea Shall Not Have Them, Reach for the Sky in 56, Carve Her Name with Pride in 1958, Uh, Personal Favourite of Mine, Sink the Bismarck in 1960. Ferry to Hong Kong in 1959, which didn't do anyone any particular credit, but is worth noticing, noti- not- noting for the fact that it's got Orson Welles in it, in a really odd Wellesian role. Uh, Damn the Defiant, The Seventh Dawn, and of course the quite iconic and influential Alfie in 1966 with Michael Caine. You Only Live Twice is one of his two, or three Bond films actually in 67 and The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker followed in the 1970s. Um, Educating Rita in 83 and Shirley Valentine. A couple of um, excellent stories there. I can remember seeing those back in the cinema in the day. Stepping Out in 1991 and Haunted in 95. A lot of good films in that, in that canon. A lot of good work done by director producer, screenwriter and actor Lewis Gilbert, now no longer with us except immortalised with his work on film. Hi, this is Fraser Hines. I played Joe in Emmerdale Farm. You're listening to 3 Triple R FM. Och, I also played we Jamie McCremon and Doctor Who. I, uh, uh, my giddy aunt. Yeah, yes, well, <clears throat> Jamie, do try and keep up in the future and uh, in the past as well. And we're journeying here on Zero G on Labor Day. Not labouring too mightily, I must say. And I hope you are also the same. Just remembering the, it is the actual, um, apart from the Moomba parade and all that sort of stuff, it is the actual anniversary of the eight-hour day decision ruling. So, looking over at Doctor Who... Noticed the other day that they have released on disc 
DVD that is Shada, S-H-A-D-A. That's not Shado, it's Shada. It's by Douglas Adams. And this is actually a reconstruction of um, a lost Doctor Who serial from the Tom Baker era, one of my favourite Doctor Who eras. And since we've just been talking about 1977 Bond, this is 1979 Doctor Who. Uh, Many... Bond actors have actually been rumoured to be cast as Doctor Who at one stage or another when they've been choosing sides, say transit from one Doctor to another. And um, Timothy Dalton actually got to play a Time Lord, though not actually the Doctor Rassilon himself. Anyway, uh, this is the Douglas Adams Doctor Who stories. It's a uh, BBC Village Roadshow release. Douglas Adams, of course, was also a story editor for Doctor Who at one stage. And uh, this is um, vintage 1979. They've reconstructed it from some footage uh, as well as um, audio and stars Tom Baker and Lala Ward. Uh, Tom is the fourth Doctor and Lala is the second incarnation of the Time Lady, Romana Davratralunda, and they all end up in Cambridge in, what time was it? I think that was uh, contemporary times then, so like 1979 into the, into the 80s. Um, there is a, um, another Time Lord involved in this, one Professor Cronotus, who's in Cambridge with a police box in his room <laughs> when the doctor shows up. There's a um, a side quest in this one about a Cambridge student who's borrowing books from Professor Cronotus, who's quite an ageing time lord. Uh, nobody really knows what's going on in this story and it wanders backwards and forwards um, with some classic footage of the, the doctor and Romana punting along on the river. Um, apparently, um, this Time Lord, Professor Cronotus, has been uh, retired in Cambridge for about 300 years ago. And uh, in tra- the tradition um, of Time Lords everywhere, he likes lots of tea, especially in a Douglas Adams context. Uh, they are after the Book of Rassilon, which is one of the artefacts of power of the Time Lords, along with the toothbrush of Rassilon and the sash and the great key and all of the other collectibles that that impressive and somewhat lunatic Time Lord had in his keeping allowed the Gallifreyans to exert their extremely advanced, indistinguishable from magic technology upon the universe, or not, as the case may be, as they're trying to avoid messing up the space-time continuum. This story has an invisible spaceship. Uh, Reminds me a little bit of City of Death, another Douglas Adams story, just a little bit there. Um, There is uh, K-9, the the little tin dog in this, and a really, really pretty awful (laughs) uh, alien villain called uh, Skagra, who swans around in one of the worst 1970s Doctor Who costumes I've ever seen. It's not exactly the most terrifying Doctor Who monster, the hovering white sphere that Skagara sends out to do his evil bidding. 
um, seemingly can escape from it when just riding a bicycle through the streets of Cambridge. You know, before you can say phantasm, <laughs> it uh, really gets into the mind of everyone. Skagra is trying to link them, every mind in the universe under his yoke, which is a fairly classic Doctor Who story trope and you can wonder why, why the master wouldn't have shown up in this one but then again it's uh, probably not necessary for this douglas adams does does take advantage of tom baker's playful acting in this and there is a policeman in here who could fit in with the best of adams's bureaucrats in any of his other stories particularly the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy um this has actually been um semi uh, issued before in other formats. Um, Shada was also done as a big Finnish production. Um, you know, there's a few other things in here. There's and it, because it's a reconstructed one, reconstructed one. There is a fair bit of animation in here. Uh, it's pretty basic, essentially a crude stop motion comic. But you know, I think they actually did better with this edition than they did with the uh, the previous one, where they threw together some extra scenes. The previous ones, actually, by now, it's going to be a common type thing. It would be nice to see if they could just do them as uh, big budget productions and animated extras. But you know, there are loads of extras in this um, commentaries by uh, the guy who played Skagra, uh, and also the um, guy who played the student Chris. Uh, there's um, uh, bits and pieces in here that seem to have survived from previous. Issuings of uh, fragmented footage, um, the BBC documentary about the strike at uh, industrial action being taken during um, the story, uh, a little bit of a, a travel log about the Cambridge locations as they are now, um, some raw footage from the 1979 studio recordings, dialogue sessions for this new release, that sort of thing. Um, so they've got uh, Tom Baker there doing some of his scenes as well. Uh, photo galleries, all that kind of stuff. All in all, actually quite an indispensable package because this is like, you know, this is the lost episode that never even made it to the screen properly. Um, so that's uh, even further than the usual Doctor Who lost episode sort of tropes. Um, so, yeah, this one is Sharda. It's out now as a BBC Village Roadshow release. You can pop in and pick it up from any of your DVD shops. All right, now, or possibly you could just sit out there on your invisible spaceship and watch the original episode uh, X number of light years out that would take you back to, what, 1979. So <laughs> that works too. That's how I got all of my complete set of Doctor Whos, actually. Um, hmm, maybe they'd be worth something someday. I don't know. Hello, this is Paul McGann, the I in Withnell and I. And I wouldn't listen to Zero G on 3 FM without serious medication. Feeling a little evil inside? This is Philip Tafts, author of The Evil Inside, on the evilly good Zero G. On th- yeah, on 3 <laughs> FM. Rob Jan here with the journey of the sorcerer there from the eagles hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy 40th anniversary and to celebrate that um, the beeb is bringing back uh, the original cast of the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy radio series to put together for a uh, 40th anniversary show which is spinning off the um 
novel, uh, what was it called again? Oh, just trying to remember. The Anyway, it was the, um, the additional novel written by Eon Kofer. And another thing, that's the title. Um, so they're going to use that as well as some unpublished Hitchhiker's material by Douglas Adams. They've taken out of some of his notebooks and, um, and other writings, which is actually preserved in the library at St John's College in Cambridge. Speaking of Sharda, as we were before, it's probably one of the um, <laughs> one of the many books sitting around Professor Cronitus's study <laughs> somewhere. So with these six episodes of this uh, new serial, they're actually getting the original actors, as many of them are still around, um, to come back and do their voice roles. So Simon Jones will be playing Arthur Dent. Um, Jeffrey McGiven will be Ford Prefect. Mark Wing Davey playing Zayford Beeblebrox. Sandra Dickinson is Trillian. And uh, they've also got Jane Horrocks playing uh, Fenchurch and standing in for Peter Jones and William Franklin who play the actual Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy book voice will be John Lloyd who is a friend of Douglas Adams and um, a co-author and also a former flatmate. <laughs> Just going past the uh, the Stephen Fry book from the television series. A lot of different iterations for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There's the the cassettes, the the records, the original radio plays, the follow-ons to those, the books, the movie, and every single one of them contains differences of one sort or another. It's it's actually quite mind-boggling. And that's as it should be for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. A little less mind-boggling, but nevertheless entirely satisfying for my mind, at least, is a book called Onward Drake. And this is actually a tribute and a bit of a celebration, the 70th birthday of highly successful science fiction, fantasy and horror writer David Drake. It is from Bain Science Fiction. This particular version is a paperback, which I finally managed to latch onto. Uh, It's got 20 stories and articles written by a whole slew of names in the science fiction firmament, including Mark L. Van Name, and he's the editor of it. Uh, Some of them have written stories, short stories, not necessarily in David Drake's particular universes, but some of them are set in those. And also essays as well. For example, Mark L. Van Name does his essay at the start of the story talking about Drake's varied and complex career. Eric Flint, who's also collaborated with David Drake on the Belisarius series, has a uh, a story in here as well as um, a bit of a... uh, uh, talk about his work with Drake on the on the uh, on the general amongst other novels in the uh, Belisarius series. Um, he has a, a short story where actors speak some rather firm truths to kings. Tom Doherty has an essay as well. S. M. Sterling talks about the Bellevue collaboration series with Drake, and Tony Daniels, sorry, Daniel has a. Um, a fantasy horror story called Hellhounds, which kind of is in the same genre as um, David Drake's Old Nathan stories, which talk about uh, American wizards in um, in, a, in a rural sense generally. Really strong fantasy novel, Old Nathan, exploring an area which I think has been under underutilised um, historical uh, fantasy 
set in the United States in their uh, in their more early periods, uh, as well as the 18th and 19th century. There's a story called Technical Advantage by John Lambshead, which plays off the idea of um, uh, North Vietnamese uh, irregular army soldiers and irregulars as well in a space sort of going Vietnam setting, which is very Drake when you think about it. Uh, Barry Maltzberg actually has a fairly confusing, I thought, story about um, Hammer's Slammers, the space mercenary regiment that David Drake has so famously created and exploited over the years in various books. Uh, Eric S. Brown has a sequel to a vampire story that Drake wrote called Something Had to Be Done. Didn't know it actually required a sequel, but here it is. Uh, Also, I think one of my favourites is one by Sarah A. Hoyt called uh, A Cog in Time, where she actually has the author David Drake playing a time travel guardian. Uh, And I think he'd actually probably make a pretty good one, seems to be at home in a number of years in the... uh, in the fantasy and science fiction worlds that he's created. Larry Correria, the um, military science fiction writer, uh, has a Hammer Slammer story about what it's like to face Drake's space mercenary company from the other side of the fence in battle. Um, not a very happy experience, one which leads you to immediately want to hire the Slammers on as your next mercenaries rather than the ones that uh, got beaten. Uh, David Drake himself has two stories in here, a comic historical fantasy called The Great Wizard Cabbage, which is actually a a funny fantasy story. Yes, he has written some humorous stories, uh, most notably in his collection All the Way to the Gallows. It's a a Romanesque fantasy set in 170 AD. And of course, uh, the the Greco-Roman historical period has been the inspiration for many of his plots throughout his science fiction books and historical fiction as well. A lot of them you can just see have been taken, uh, at least the structure from uh, various historical events from those periods, uh, including um, Killer, Birds of Prey, uh, Vettius and his friends and his uh, Roman space adventure, Ranks of Bronze. All of those come from that era. This is the first, also has the first new Hammer Slammer story that he's written in 10 years, Save What You Can. And it is, of course, uh, devastatingly gritty and um, hyper-real in its depiction of future military adventure. So this is called Onward Drake. It actually has a picture of the author on the cover dressed up as an ancient Roman Uh, and I think it was just a a nice idea and and a fun little tribute to the author who's written so much science fiction and fantasy over 50 years and it's a Bain paperback all right now let's hope we have some better futures than uh, the poor old slammers existing in their eternal battles against the universe or some of the uh, less fortunate horror characters in some of his upper stories. Hello, I'm Ray Harryhausen, animation pioneer. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. And it doesn't get any better in the future than Zero G, which is actually kind of tragic when you think about it. Rob Jan here on Labor Day. 
hardly labouring on today. It's perhaps but be labouring a few points, but uh, not exactly working here since it's all fun and giggles on Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio. Coming up to 2 o'clock where Joe Brunetic will sweep in with Astral Glamour. But before then, I'm looking at a graphic novel here and this is the uh, the, tr- the, um, the large well, not the large format, but the uh, the hardback version of a little series I've been following called Angel Catbird. And this is the second volume in Dark Horse's um, publication run of this, uh, compi- compiling a number of the, um, the normal books into one big readable adventure by Margaret Atwood. Yes, she of The Handmaid's Tale. With illustrations by Johnny Christmas, colours by Tamara Bonvillain and letters by Nate Picos of Blambots. <laughs> uh, let me just say, I do actually like Johnny Christmas's illustrations for this. Um, they've got a, a nice sort of, well, let's say a Silver Age sort of feel to them. And the colours really do work quite well in conjunction with that. This particular one, because it's to do with Castle Catula and uh, vampire cats, uh, does read a little bit sort of more darker and more more pallid because they're actually out at night a lot in this particular story as they, the adventurers in it head towards Castle Catula. So this is volume two in the series, so it's already been set up in the previous one that the main character, Strig Felidus... <laughs> was a genetic engineer who uh, was working on a transgenic splicing formula which would uh, enable different genes from different animals to be spliced together. Now, in a not-quite-accident, he ran outside of his home uh, after his cat, Ding, who'd um, escaped from his... um, Location and there was an owl passing and a vehicle accident and the transgenic formula was spilled and before you can say cowabunga dude, you have the creation of Angel Catbird, which is um, Strig taking on the characteristics of both an owl and a cat. <laughs> so, there you go, origin in one. Uh, we get he gets to meet uh, various friends along the way who will help ease him through his newly found wear condition, um, initiating him into the underground cat culture of wear cats. Wear cats, cats who are there, including um, his girlfriend Kate, who is a, a cat like other household Kates, but actually is a wear cat as well. Um, Athene Owl. Was a, an incarnation of the ancient goddess uh, who rather fancies him, which put, puts um, her at odds with Kate, uh, and other characters that they encounter along the way to Castle Catula, where they will meet the vampire cat of legend who has a funny origin of his own. Uh, it's all pretty amusing and gently done, but because this book also um, pushes a line of um, safe and responsible cat ownership. Um, there are some moments in there beyond the uh, little sidebars where they talk about um, um, good cat ownership. 
some, a moment where they find a, uh, a dump kitten that's grown up in the woods that actually had me misty-eyed as I was reading it because it was just such a terrible thing to do, so heart-wrenching. Oh, <laughs> actually tearing up as I'm talking about it now. Okay, his enemy, Angel Catbird's enemy, is Professor Muroid, who's a half rat, and yes, fulfilling all the cliches of that breed. Um, his cunning plan is to exterminate cats and birds around the world and become the dominant rat in society. He has his own murines, his uh, evil minions, and a terrible drone rat specifically designed to lure in cats and destroy them. It's um, a big bouncy thing with bright coloured feathers and whirling wings and that's a cat toy basically that's turned into a weapon of moggy destruction. It all ends up at Count Catchula's castle. You will also find some really nice covers compiled in the back of the graphic novel as they often do just to uh, so you can see what you missed out on when you didn't buy the individual titles Uh, and some storyboards as well showing them how they got that way it's um a strangely uplifting margaret atwood tale not one of her post-apocalyptic ones or indeed the uh, the grim handmaid's tale sort of thing but a cat tale a lot more lashy and upright and happy really angel catbird volume two from dark horse comics wow hey space buddies i'm danny john jules i play the cat on red dwarf and i gotta tell you that listening to zero g is fashionable as wearing knee-length socks with thongs zero g industrial strength sci-fi pum pum on three triple r that's it for zero g joe brunetti coming up next with astral glamour This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.